Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Hey, Modern Therapists, we're so excited to offer the opportunity for one unit of continuing education for this podcast episode. Once you've listened to this episode, to get CE credit, you just need to go to moderntherapistcommunity.com, register for your free profile, purchase this course, pass the post-test, and complete the evaluation. Once that's all completed, you'll get a CE certificate in your profile, or you can download it for your records. For a current list of our CE approvals, check out moderntherapistcommunity.com. Once again, hop over to moderntherapistcommunity.com for one CE once you've listened. Woohoo! Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is another one of our continuing education eligible episodes. This is beyond reimagination. This is a workshop that Katie and I had done at the 2021 Therapy Reimagined Conference. And we decided that this would be a good topic to bring up to our audience here. You can do the continuing education steps that you heard in the intro of the episode. This is also available live over on our learning platform if you want to see the video version of us. But this is really something where a lot of the zeitgeist in therapist circles is around what do we do about some of these mental health apps and telehealth services that seem to be taking over our profession? What can we can do as practitioners other than just complain in internet forums about them? <laughs> but what are things that we can actually do about our practices in order to start to address this in some real tangible ways. Yeah, I think the biggest piece I keep thinking about therapists, kind of traditional therapists that are not on these app-based therapy things as taxi drivers to Uber or Blockbuster to Netflix, you know, kind of holding the line and saying, no, no, we cannot let this go forward. These are, folks are awful. And, and some are, but I think there's some stuff that we need to learn. And I think it's definitely important that we pay attention to how therapy is changing, or dare I say how therapy is being reimagined. And have a have a seat at the table and, and do what we can to really move along with progress. Moving this from thought to action. So we've got some learning objectives here. Our first learning objective is identify three characteristics of clients that are seeking out and benefiting from app-based therapy. Our second learning objective is describe three laws that impact brick and mortar psychotherapists when adding these steps to practice. 
and compare and contrast the long-term effects of app-based therapy with traditional outpatient and telehealth psychotherapy. All righty. So getting into it, I think there's some goals that we have for fixing mental health care, what big tech has done, what they've gotten right and what they've gotten wrong, and really looking at what needs to be done. And so the the first thing, I do want to refer us back to a series that Kurt and I are working on, Fixing Mental Health Care in America. In the first episode of that series, we highlighted uh, the authors of the RAND study, and they have some really good points. And so I want to just bring them up as kind of a broader kind of umbrella for us to look at because they're they're talking about some of this stuff as well, but really looking at more of a systemic uh, mental health solution versus a uh, kind of entrepreneurial mental health solution or a big tech uh, version of it. So looking at the, the the stated goals that they have for fixing mental health care in America, the first one is promoting systematic mental health education. And I think that's across the lifespans that we have more knowledge ahead of the game. So we're not becoming adults and have no idea how to take care of ourselves. Integrating behavioral health expertise into general healthcare settings, integrating medical and mental health care, developing a mental health diversion strategy centered on community behavioral health, strengthening mental health parity regulation and enforcement, which of course we have also advocated for, reimbursing evidence-based behavioral health treatments at their true cost, which listen to our interview with them. I think we go into that in a little detail what that means and some controversy that we have around that. Expanding access to digital and telehealth services for mental health, which is what app-based people are doing, but there's there's more to it, including making sure that there's consistent Wi-Fi in uh, a lot of places that don't necessarily have it. So these apps aren't actually reaching there, but I'm previewing. I'll get back on track here. And the last one is including patient important outcomes and treatment planning and assessments of care quality. And a lot of this stuff I think sounds familiar because anyone who's worked in community mental health, a lot of these things have been some of the the standing goals for years. But I think being able to figure out how this applies to us and what we're doing, I think can be helpful. But big tech is actually taking some of this on. And it's important to highlight and recognize that there's no centralized definition of mental health apps. So while those who are familiar with the podcast are used to us complaining about some of the bigger players like Talkspace and BetterHelp and such, that included in a lot of this research here is also going to be mindfulness-based apps or apps that just focus on like meditation. All of those in the research are going to be included in some of the research that we cite here today. But in all of this discussion, big tech's fix is that things are completely digital. Things are either through telehealth, they're text-based, they're messaging services. Whether there is a human on the other end of those treatments or whether it is moving more and more into AI-driven mental health treatment sort of things, all like of this the is robot. done. Like the robots, like <laughs> many of the other AI machine learning sort of things that are being developed out there. All of this stuff is big tech is trying to address things digitally. 
Big Tech also is doing this in a number of different areas. And like I just highlighted that not all of this is just straightforward therapy. Some of it's about psychoeducation. Some of it's coaching. You can also get medications prescribed online now. And within all of this research, part of what big tech is doing is taking a lot of what we as traditional therapists have been either devoting some of our session time to, or just kind of shoving some books or articles at clients to be like, <laughs> hey, go and read this. It's now a lot more readily available to clients at the push of a couple of digital buttons. Yeah, I think that idea of a one-stop shop really does provide the whole range of care that I think the RAND folks were talking about. I think the other thing, and this is something that we've talked about and, and we do have some concerns with, and I know individual practitioners do especially, but a lot of these big tech companies, especially if they are hiring lots of clinicians, whether they call them their clinicians or just users of their app to connect with clients, they do direct negotiation with insurance panels. And I think this is something where that can be amazing for consumers if it's done well, if the clinicians are paid well, but it can also be something where clients are still paying a lot of money. Their insurance isn't necessarily exactly lined up and the clinicians are still not making very much. But before I get too d into the weeds on that, the fact that they are directly negotiating with insurance panels, it's huge panels of therapist. And sometimes that means that they will get higher insurance reimbursement and individual or small group practices are getting left out in the, the cold as far as those things. Now, some of the apps that are being used are, like I said, using machine learning to be able to determine different kinds of patterns that show up. And in some cases, this is looking at linguistic patterns and the ways that people give permission to have either their text messages read by some of these apps or whether it's communications that are used within the apps themselves have gone so far as to be able to identify clients' risk for things like attempting suicide, having bipolar episodes, and using some of these linguistic patterns that can be operated are things that human therapists are just woefully inadequate at being able to do of noticing <laughs> the changes in oh, you're using first person language a lot more frequently in a frenetic pace. Some of these apps are also using geolocation data, particularly early research on this has been done in more rural and areas that don't have as many mental health providers, but being able to track people to where they're going can help predict things like substance abuse relapses. Wow. Yeah, like I'm I'm heading towards the bar. <laughs> and I get a little a little message from my AI therapist saying, "Are you sure? Do you really want to walk in there?" <laughs> Ooh, that's creepy. I think another element, and, and this is something that I don't know as much about, Kurt, but I think there's there's this idea around using some of this stuff to be really very, you know, hands-on and involved and kind of monetizing every little piece of it. But what that means is that there are complex and dynamic payment strategies for services. There's there's a lot of things that are happening in there. And so, you know, what people get paid, what people are paying, like it, Nobody really seems to know what's going on there. 
And we highlighted that in a previous episode where we had talked to some therapists about their experiences working with some of these mental health apps. And they described a number of different payment structures that were based on anything from the client's happiness of how their sessions went to the number of words that were typed back and forth between the therapist and client with no clear structure on predictability. So, I mean, there's rating, I guess. Are they doing outcome measures as well? So a lot of these apps are using outcome measures, which Katie and I do espouse as being a very, very good thing when it comes to clients being able to track and monitor their own progress and determining whether or not therapy is helpful. What you're describing is that outcome measures are actually sometimes baked in and whether that they're good outcome measures or not is to be seen, but we've got everything kind of one-stop shop, lots of things monetized, complicated payment services, but there is some sort of feedback and rating that's coming back and forth between clients. Yes, there All is. Right. Yeah. All right. What a lot of these apps are doing correctly is they are reducing the friction points that clients have to go through in order to get into treatment. If you think of kind of the the traditional therapy model. Somebody has to find your website, make a phone call, wait for you to call them back because a lot of therapists just don't pick up the phone when it's a strange number that's coming up. And then if it's not an appropriate time for you or somebody from your office to call back, then you're playing phone tag sometimes for several days. The By the time that you actually talk to them and negotiate price points, because if it's not listed on your website, they don't know what they're going to be paying (laughs) and whether or not you take their insurance. Yeah. And then there's things like sitting through traffic, getting through parking up to your office and in to see you. Every single one of those things becomes a friction point for clients to come in. And where some of these apps are a lot more appealing is it really reduces the number of friction points if hey, I'm paying this fee. I can talk to a counselor, whether it's at my scheduled time, wherever it is that I'm located, I am matched up with somebody that has taken out several of those friction points already. Well, and I think that a lot of therapists, uh, once the pandemic hit, I think a lot of therapists became more available online, but there are still those initial pieces around actually getting scheduled, getting paperwork completed, all of those things, you know? And so I think that regardless of whether you're online or kind of in a brick and mortar therapy practice, I think there are friction points that are gone with app-based therapy. And and I, I think they're doing that right. I think being able to get folks into treatment right when they want it is pretty awesome. This decreased healthcare cost for consumers is one of the ones we put down here. And I think that that is something that consumers definitely want, that therapy feels very expensive for for a lot of folks. Some people don't see it that way, but but there are folks that see it as, as unapproachable financially. And so the fact that these apps are providing this type of healthcare at a decreased cost is something that they're getting right. I think the, the problem is obviously sometimes it's on the backs of therapists getting paid very little. And when it comes to some of these one-stop shop sort of things that sometimes for clients, the trade-off is well worth it. If they can go one place and get 
their psychoeducation, their coaching, their therapy, their meds, all within a singular app or a singular stop for some of the decreased healthcare costs compared to just some general run of the mill therapist that's, you know, maybe in an office down the street, that this might be a worthwhile trade-off because of that convenience and because of that decreased cost that uh, if this is something that I'm going to have to face regularly, yeah, any therapist is as good as any other. And if I can get all of this stuff done with the clicks of a few buttons on my own time, then makes a lot of sense from a client end of why they might be adopting these kinds of things. They also oftentimes have a lot more availability to connect with therapists between sessions, whether it's texting or quick calls. Um, it seems like sessions also are flexible in length. You know, I think so many different apps here, right? So I think there's a lot that that's not discussed here. But but when you're able to have some continuity of care from one session to the next. I think that's actually really good for clients. I mean, some clients will like the 50 minute every week, <laughs> once a week, and some really need some additional kind of in the moment coaching calls or that kind of stuff. And, and DBT therapists are, are the most notable in my mind who do these types of things. But this availability to connect with your therapist between sessions in a prescribed way, I think is is something that big tech is getting right. And one thing that these apps do allow for in a very trauma-informed treatment sort of way is because things don't necessarily have to always happen in real time, it gives clients an opportunity to be able to compose their thoughts and be able to really take the time and being able to express themselves. You don't have a therapist sitting menacingly at you across the room <laughs> scribbling things down on their clipboard while you're trying to be like, well, how do I feel? I'm just going to blurt something out. But with some of these Are apps... Are we menacing? We're menacing? <laughs> but what some of these asynchronous apps do is they allow for clients to be able to pause, take a moment, write out how they're feeling, determine if that actually is how they want to express themselves. And there are many clients who report that this is a lot less threatening way to deal with emotions and deal with mental health problems because they have the time to look at themselves and don't feel pressured by somebody to answer right in that time. Yeah, I, I think that can be very helpful. We talk in you know, one of our previous, what well, I guess two of our previous uh, episodes on non-traditional therapy, types of therapy. And in, and really in looking at that, it's, it's something where being able to step outside of the confines of your office can be really empowering for clients because they can, you know, walk side by side with you in this regard, they can, they can text back and forth with you. I think there's, there's things that we miss if we feel like we must be looking someone in the eyes, either virtually or uh, sitting in an office. It's not what you come to you expect us to talk about is all the great things that big yeah. tech is doing. <laughs> That's not why you you tuned in. You're wanting to know what they're getting wrong. So yeah. what are they getting wrong, Kurt? What's the biggest thing? Well, in economics, there is a thing called the McDonaldization. And this is a criticism of the ways that things kind of based on the McDonald's model tend to have to meet certain kinds of requirements, no matter which store that you go into. 
And a lot of what we thrive on as modern therapists is being able to utilize the certain aspects of creativity, the individuality of our own personal experiences and the ways that we relate to clients. But these kinds of things don't scale. And so what ends up happening with trying to appeal to more and more consumers is that this commoditization of the profession ends up trying to look the same no matter who the therapist is. And so we see these things in things like efficiency. You know, No matter which therapist that you're going to use on our app, we're going to try and get you through here as fast as humanly possible. And we're going to try and have quantifiable measured results. And it's going to be standardized. So that way, if your therapist leaves the app, the next one who comes in is going to be doing the exact same thing. And it's going to be predictable no matter what happens. Just like a Big Mac is a Big Mac is a Big Mac, no matter which McDonald's you go to globally. Yeah. And and I, I think we've talked about this a lot, so we don't need to, to harp on it too much. But I, I think this cookie cutter element, I think just, it just, it sucks my soul out of my ears. I just don't love it. I think the other thing, and this is when I've worked in, in kind of these evidence-based practices um, that were poorly implemented as well as uh, some of these other things. But, but what I, what we've heard from some of these folks is that there are some sort of proprietary treatment methods. And then there's, there's these incentives to use them. So people are wanting to, they're being told, therapists are being told, keep them in the app, keep bringing them back to the app. We've got these worksheets, use these worksheets, don't use those, don't let them off the app. And so it becomes we want you to stay within this tiny little frame of what treatment is for quote unquote evidence-based practice reasons, but also for financial reasons. We need them to stick. We need them to get upsold on the, on the platform. And so it, it is very concerning to me clinically that there is, there's this incentive to do stuff based on the corporation's needs versus the client's needs. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Within these proprietary treatment methods, clinicians not only are incentivized to use them, but then it becomes kind of an opportunity to not have any customization. And Mm. being able to treat clients differently because of, I don't know, things like intersectionality or unique personal experiences that 
allow for clinicians to be able to use all of that graduate school training and all of the training towards licensure that we have to be able to make new and novel treatment suggestions to clients. If it doesn't already exist within the app, it might not be something that some of these apps really allow for clinicians to be able to use. And that creates a potential lack of alignment between what the client's goals are and what the goals of the app are. And oftentimes just incentivizes making somewhere from the fastest route of having symptoms to defining to where clients no longer have those symptoms, whether or not it actually addresses their mental health issues in any sort of deep, meaningful, and long-lasting way. Yeah, there are are positives to a lot of different, you know, technological solutions, but there is evidence that there is an ability to have a a digital therapeutic alliance. And I think we can do that. So we'll talk about that later. But I think the, the, the problem with the apps, especially these ones that are so streamlined and are so self-driven by the clients, which could be positive, but if there are, if there's a lack of insight into what I'm grappling with, what I need to work on, I'm just upset, I'm just horrible, I'm just whatever. I think that the, there can be a, a funnel for especially, you know, the concerns I have is there's a funnel for the seriously mentally ill clients to not get the the level of solutions that they need. So they're, they're individualized, they're self-directed positive, but it doesn't, it doesn't address that there are potentially more specific solutions that would be better for them. If you're going into a general app versus a specialized app, because you don't know what your diagnosis is, you don't know what you're working on, you just want to feel better, I think you can get caught into a place where there's insufficient resources because you've been been insufficiently screened. But I think it also kind of promotes this idea that it's an individual solution that's needed versus more of a social solution where we're looking at how do we, as a society, address some of these larger mental health concerns versus continuing to put it on the individual. Always paired with this is the treatment of the therapist. And mm-hmm. we've made reference to this in other episodes, but you know, the mailers that I get stuffed into my mailbox at my office every so often promise that you can make $120,000, $130,000 working for some of these apps, but working through the little convenient sliders that they put on their websites, <laughs> sometimes that would mean having 50 sessions per week, every week out of the year with no time Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's ridiculous. And in order to fill caseloads of that would mean that people would be having caseloads somewhere near 80 to 90 clients to be able to actually schedule and fit in that many hours per week. People are rushing out of DMHY for these um, mm, yeah, well, and, and we've talked about this in a number of other episodes, but if you have a gigantic caseload and you're burning out, the likelihood that, that your clinical outcomes are high drops dramatically. And part of the clinical concerns on this is that, well, therapists themselves are bound by HIPAA, the apps themselves are not because mm. they call themselves and are recognized so far as being therapist matchmakers, not as actual mental health professionals. And what this does is this moves the guidance of where your data is stored 
out of the healthcare sector and into SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission, which has much different requirements as far as how data is stored. Now, if you think that this is something where that's scary enough as it is, they're now allowed to share this data across their own platforms, across any of their third-party marketing sort of people. And when we start looking at things like Amazon moving into health services, that that could easily be shared with Alexa popping up in your room as far as your you know <laughs> oh, suggested no! things like, hey, it's time to refill your Lexapro prescription. Have you also considered these supplements that other buyers like you have potentially wanted? Oh, dear. So, so, so then Alexa starts selling us supplements without a a dietitian or medical degree, right? Oh no, that is awful. That is awful. And so, to me, when we're when we're looking at this, there's a risk for clients engaging in these really convenient therapies, and to me, I, I think as a society, there's a lot of us that have just decided that we are going to engage in this stuff because it's convenient. But what you're describing, Alexa suggesting supplements, and and probably it'll align with also the supplement recommendations you got in your Facebook group and what's on your your Google search. (laughs) All of a sudden, you are getting a lot of things to pay for without professional advice. And, And that's the other piece about this it's kind of this profit versus service model is that there's this idea that you are not a client, not a patient, you are a consumer and someone to market to. And so you'll be marketed to as a client throughout the app. And as a clinician, you become a marketer for those things behind the paywall. And that is terrifying because it's, it's not, it's not based on, on treatment. You know, this can be true of any online retailer, but I'm going to talk about my experiences of shopping on a, an online retailer that might be named after a South American river. <laughs> but a lot of times when I go in to purchase something that it says, oh, here is our brand name version of this. Or have you considered buying our brand name version of this instead of this thing that you're looking to buy? Yeah. And not only now are we talking about the potential of proprietary mental health treatments and worksheets that have to be used, but also potentially any of these companies that would want to go into manufacturing their own medications. As oh, my goodness. A, I don't know that this is something that anybody is actually doing at this point but it the the jump from where we're at now to that i don't think is as far off as what any of us have really ever even considered that is very scary i mean to me we already have a a really tough sell to to move into a space that is more private, more individualized, just because there's so many pieces to the system that love this idea of 
efficiency and evidence base and all of those things. And not that those things are bad. I love efficiency. I love making sure that what I'm doing has evidence. <laughs> but but when it becomes this, you know, going back to that word McDonald McDonaldized, McDonaldization. McDonaldization. <laughs> it becomes a McDonaldization of our profession. I think it just it loses it loses so much in what actually makes therapy work. I know you had also talked about some other legal and ethical concerns. And as we've covered in some of our other podcasts before, there's also concerns around the ways that therapists have to follow their own licensing laws, that some of these apps just don't make it easy to do. Some of the potential attraction to some of these apps for consumers is that Hey, I can be anonymous on here. I can I don't have to share my name and location data, but for those therapists who are working with clients that pose potential risks to themselves or to other people, including pretty much every telehealth law in the country is needing to know where your client is at at the time of services. That yeah. if the anonymity is there, that this creates a potential block to being able to adequately work with clients in a safe way. There are licensing limitations as far as seeing clients in different jurisdictions. And while we have things like the Counselor Compact and SIPACT that seem to be moving in directions that allow for people to practice in multiple states, you can still likely get matched with people who are still outside of areas that you are legally allowed to practice. And that becomes sticking point for you and the employer in this situation as far as whether you choose to follow the law or choose to have employment. Yeah. And I think that the the piece with that is if you don't know where they are, you're really caught, you know, it it just, it, 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 there's so much that clinicians have to grapple with if they're working within these, these apps that I think it's, it's something where, really being very clear on the laws and ethics around where your clients are, what that means for liability, as well as whether or not you can actually practice therapy with them. The ways that a lot of these apps end up charging customers is based on a subscription model. You pay X number of dollars per month and you're allowed to have so many sessions or so many communications with your therapist, which in theory sounds good. But for those clients who don't use those services, many of the laws that therapists have to follow in brick and mortar type settings are that you have to give the money back for services that they don't use. And this is, again, where the business practices kind of force people to either use services that they may or may not necessarily need, or if it becomes something to where... If I'm a consumer trying to reach out to my therapist in one of these platforms, but they're booked up over the last couple of weeks of the month because everybody else is also trying to get in their third, fourth session out of the month and there's no availability, this actually does create inadvertent barriers to treatment that the subscription model just kind of forces consumers to have to eat the cost on. Or if they need more services, like they, you know, they get ready to to send a text and they are like, oh, we'll pay more to be able to finish this up, you know, so someone's in crisis and there's not that, that, that freedom of movement to use more services easily or 
people are using services they don't need or whatever. I mean, it, it, it's just, it's, it's bad because it's finances driving frequency of treatment. Although now that I'm saying it, I, I do have clients that meet more or less depending on their fee or, or what they're, where they're with their finances. So it's not completely different, but the, the subscription model I think is especially problematic because of what many laws and ethics uh, say about it. I can just imagine therapists being like, you have not unlocked this part of the map yet. And, <laughs> you know, it's just a, this grayed out zone of their treatment plan. And, you know, subscribe at this higher level in order to get the rest of your treatment plan as being oh, something that's potentially going to happen down the road. Well, and, and to me, it's just another thing that therapists are having to do is reminding clients to use all their sessions cutting clients off if they don't have the money for sessions to to add more sessions. I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking. I mean, it's maybe it's enforced boundaries on one end of things, but it it's not necessarily really that because there's not appropriate downtime and boundaries, right? Like they're clinicians are basically on call 24 seven with a threat of bad reviews, decreased client referrals or docked wages. Like it's, it's something where this, this model put so much on the, the clinicians to either pursue more money or to be available all the time and provide services at the risk of getting, you know, getting a bad review from a client. It doesn't seem sustainable for certain, but I, I think it also feels like it's very much against a strong clinical treatment planning model, as well as a strong therapeutic alliance. I mean, it just, it feels bad. So let's shift gears here a little bit. Sounds let's good. talk about who the consumers are that are utilizing these services. Sounds good. Now, audience, I want you to kind of picture who you think are using these apps. Because a couple of research articles, one by Nitzberg and Farber was published in 2019, and another one that's out for press by Marcel et al., are describing that the typical app-based therapy consumer, typically female, 74 to 79%, typically white, 70.8%, the median age of 32 to 33 years old. 79.4% are college-educated or more, and 85% have been in therapy face-to-face -face before with an average of three to nine years of treatment. Now, so these are our clients. These are people who are, are therapy veterans moving these, to apps. These are therapy veterans moving to apps. Now, a lot of what we have talked about, whether it's with the RAND people, whether it's in setting up better telehealth for people to be accessing things in rural areas, people who have never received mental health treatment before, the statistics on the people who are actually utilizing these apps don't support any of those really wonderful feel-good arguments that we've been espousing for years as a profession of this is a great way to reach people in rural areas who've never had mental health treatment before. These are literally clients who've been in our offices now replacing us with people who are more convenient. So there's the convenient element, but I have to imagine it's not just convenient. Somebody that's been in therapy for three to nine years on average is not is not leaving just because it's more convenient to get on an app. 
Well, and they are leaving because they're citing things like therapy is too expensive. It takes too much time, not only in you know the, the sessions of sitting there for 45, 50 minutes at a time, 53 minutes for those of you billing you know, <laughs> CPT codes that reimburse a little bit more. It's not just that it takes too much time in session, but it takes too much time to drive to sessions, to park, to do anything else that, you know, it's not just one hour out of the day. It's potentially two or three, depending on how close your office is to them. Sure. Which speaks to the inconvenience factor or that insurance doesn't cover it. All of us who provide super bills or just don't provide super bills at all that end up being things that also contribute to just kind of feelings of, is it actually worth it? Because some of these people who've been in therapy for three to nine years are even saying therapy just wasn't working at all for them. Or like I mentioned earlier, that it can be too intense or overwhelming to have to sit face to face with somebody and have to talk about things like trauma or talk about things like attachment when a really disorganized childhood ended up making it very difficult to relate to people that the reasons that they're moving is because these things actually suit the clients better for what they're seeking out of therapy, not necessarily what we as therapists have been told clients must fit into. Well, and when, when it's described this way, I mean, I can understand not wanting to pay a lot more money for something that's terribly inconvenient, uncomfortable, and doesn't work. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> when you did some more research on these app-based therapy programs, just tell me a little bit more about what they're, what's, what they're getting right, what they're getting wrong, what, what, what are we doing? Economities et al., uh, 2019 article here, looked at what some of these app-based therapies are getting right. How effective are they with clients who are seeking them out? And what they report is that after six months, clients presenting with anxiety-related issues, after six months, anxiety reduction maintained in 95% of patients. In the same article, they reported that depression was reduced and maintained for 12 months in 95% of patients. These are basically the same results that people are getting out of face-to-face. And But less than 5% of users go from month one to month two in treatment. So wait, wait, wait. So what you're saying is 95% of folks are dropping off before the second month. They sign up, they don't continue past the first month. So the 95% of folks who are getting these good results or are of that 5% that stayed? People are either getting what they need really, really effectively. So super fast. Super fast. And with things like anxiety and depression, have the ability to maintain their gains six and 12 months later. Okay. But there are a number of people who aren't staying with the apps who are not getting the same kinds of successes. And these are really where we start to parse out the different kinds of mental health apps. Apps that focus on specific diagnostics. Here's an anxiety app. Here's a depression app. Tend to hold more market share and get better results out of their clients. 
as compared to more generalist apps that, hey, come here for your mental health issues. We're going to have commercials and fill your Facebook feeds and talk about how this is the greatest app for everything that you could possibly want under the sun with a licensed therapist tend not to actually have as much success maintaining clients. You know, we're going to call this more generalist. So the generalist apps are promoting a lot, getting a lot of folks in, and they're only keeping about 5% of the clients, but they've also taken in all of that data, which they might, if they, if they have these practices in place, are now sharing with third-party partners are doing not only that, but they're also claiming that they're using all of these evidence-based practices, despite there not being any sort of regulation on what evidence that they're actually using, whether it's proprietary or whether it's based in research. And I'm sure that a lot of them are some sort of CBT flavored structure sort of things. But when it comes to actually getting good client treatment. The research that we're citing here is from Marcel et al. in that still waiting to be published document, as well as Fredericks et al. in 2020. The more specific that an app is to a treatment, to a diagnostic, and this goes beyond kind of anxiety and depression, which I think a lot of therapists consider as kind of the more run-of-the-mill diagnostics, even into things like eating disorders. And mm. psychosis has their own special apps that are showing much higher levels of success in clients. Now, we've known this for years. We've coached you in early episodes of this podcast. There's plenty of other business coaches out there who will tell you the same thing. What this really means is having a niche practice works. Yeah. I think to me, I think being able to understand how they're actually working is really helpful. Um, I, I think about the the niche apps and my my sense is that some of those apps that are are for folks with a specific diagnostic are being referred from therapists with a confirmed diagnosis and insight into what and how to use these apps. And so leading into what can we do as modern therapists to to not become taxi drivers of the world, <laughs> which further problems with that, but that's a whole other conversation. I think it's important to look at what they're getting right and, and do some of those same things, you know, learning from the mistakes and the innovations, whether it's decreasing the decreasing the the friction points, being able to really access innovations. I think there's there's a lot of things that tech can really help with. And I think if we say all big tech is bad, we are really missing a lot um, in what we can do with our practices. I think we also have a lot that we can do that apps can't. I mean, you talk about the things that can't scale. Those are the things we should be doing. That is, again, really common with a lot of themes that we've talked about for years in the podcast in our conferences, as far as really being able to present who you are, make it kind of a, a really nice boutique sort of, here's the approach that I take that allows clients to be able to opt into that, to be able to make a 
brand value decision. As long as you're able to follow up on that, clients will move away from the McDonald's of the world and more into things that feel great and feel tailored to them. Yeah. But it's also not ignoring that these apps are out there, that we can incorporate some of these apps into our treatment. It's not yeah. necessarily the ones that are delivering you know, extra therapy sessions, but hey, here's the this mindfulness app that allows for you to be able to implement mindfulness strategies that we're working in sessions. Here's a mood tracking app that allows for you to be able to conveniently track things down and not have to worry about like, how was I feeling earlier? But mostly, if you focus on actually being a better therapist <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and communicating that, that here's the successes that I have, here's the types of clients that have success with me, that kind of improvement actually does end up making you competitive with people who end up you know, being frustrated with the apps makes you more appealing to them of, hey, this is somebody who actually gets the results that I'm not getting through some of these apps. Exactly. And I, I don't know how many clients I've had come to me that have been on some of these some of these therapy apps that are surprised at what therapy actually is because they've gotten such a watered down Big Mac. <laughs> <laughs> So, so some of the innovations that I think are really good to incorporate, uh, whether it's the the technological considerations, I, I you know, being able to to look at where stuff could fall in. I mean, that's an obvious one. Like, actually use the tech. But some of these other things that I think are really important are being able to provide some psychoeducation and self-assessment with some caution. You don't want to be providing therapy outside of therapy, but having folks be able to find you th through some resources or being able to provide them with opportunities to do some of their, their work on their own, I think is really helpful. So many folks, I think, get really worried about having clients have a Band-Aid fix something before they get into session. But I think in truth, letting folks kind of take a chance with it <laughs> and and do a self-assessment and and say like, oh yeah, no, I absolutely do need to go see Kurt or, oh no, I am not a match for Kurt. <laughs> Could be helpful. <laughs> and you should lean into that because those are the clients who are more likely going to be successful with you in the first place. Yeah. And creating an understanding of you know, lived experience or personality matches or anything like that but also reducing any sorts of friction points that happen not only in getting clients into treatment, but being really quite flexible with clients when it comes to, you know, some of the innovations that we can also continue on here is where appropriate, be a one-stop shop. If that's partnering up with other therapists who work kind of like you, but maybe in slightly different ways, if it's working within a group practice that, helps to serve clients, but each of you have your own specialty niches. This is not trying to be the one-stop shop, like, you know, the McDonald's of like, here's a salad and a hamburger. And sometimes, place, with, play some, place, sometimes so. when the ice cream machine is working, but <laughs> being very cognizant about how you're presenting yourself out there and evaluating if you're actually treating the clients that 
you are actually effective at treating and making adjustments along the way to go and work with those kinds of clients or be a resource for those kinds of clients helps out. Yeah. And, and to me, there's, there's so many pieces to it. And I think part of the, the evaluation that you want to do is on the therapeutic alliance, which isn't always done, I think, within these apps. And, and I think finding that if you are flexible in how you communicate, you have a way to connect between sessions or have some sort of continuity of connection or care between sessions. I think those things, although folks, I think, find them very uncomfortable because it's like, oh, I want my time away. I want to, I want clients to communicate with me in one way. I, you know, I have to set these hard boundaries, but if you can design that that mechanism to really be available within appropriate boundaries that you're able to take care of yourself. I think it, it, it is one of the innovations that I think can be very helpful. I mentioned earlier, I think DBT therapists do this really well. They have great boundaries. They make sure they're in wise mind, but they do coaching calls 24 seven. I will never do coaching calls 24 seven, but I'm not going to not do any coaching calls because I think they do have some benefit. And so it's looking at within your practice, within the, the niche that you work with, what, your specialty, I think identifying what flexibility of communication, connection, and care can really help your folks to get what they need and make more therapeutic improvements more quickly. A lot of what you're talking about, and I'll, I'll be a lot more blunt about it, is it's making therapy in our business practices decrease friction. So that way it's a better client experience than it is about things that make things convenient for the therapist. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, that we probably disagree on some of the the elements of this, because I do think therapists need to have sustainable businesses. I, you agree with that, but I think you're more like buck up and deal with it. This is a job. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, we need to still take care of ourselves. So I think there's, there's room to negotiate there. But, but to me, some of these, some of the stuff that decreases friction is, are things that are super helpful. I mean, there's electronic health care systems and, and, you know, practice management systems that basically make it so people can schedule, communicate, fill out, you know, paperless intakes, do all that stuff. One of our partners this year is Thrizer and is doing like all of the billing for folks. So like you just sign up and <laughs> and you get your insurance billing taken care of. And so there's 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 a lot of technological solutions where it decreases friction for clients. And it helps you to do less work. And to me, that, that helps align the, the therapeutic relationship because the clients are happier and better taken care of and you are doing less work. And so you are less resentful of clients having needs outside of the therapeutic needs. Well, I also you know, want to encourage that you know, many people that I talk to are absolutely appalled at the idea that somebody who they've never met before can book a session with them on the same day. I'm one of those people. <laughs> but if we really are talking about removing friction for clients, if somebody is going around the internet, do, 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 oh, I need, I'm in the market for buying a therapy session today. Yeah. I, I, you know, willing to pay top dollar for good therapists. And I see that somebody has availability today and I can click, click and it sends me a video link and 
boom, now I'm a lifelong therapy client with this person because they were available. I, I see that. And I think that it's, it's, it is something that, that different clinicians are going to have to look at. Some people have the flexibility to meet someone brand new today without any notice. Uh, some folks need to have a little bit of, of advanced prep work. I, I can see clients in a couple of days. I do want them to fill out paperwork. And so that, that happens automated. So they can schedule an appointment today and won't necessarily, you know, and we'll get started with the process, but they, they won't necessarily get appointment for a couple of days because I need the chance to kind of prep for it. But this is, this is my point as far as if we're talking about the consumer side of things. Sure. That if you have an online calendar that, hey, I have clients in the morning, I have a couple of hours in the middle of the day that are open and unscheduled, and I have clients in the evening. It makes good business sense to be able to have somebody be able to opt into that time. I mean, you sure. can, you and I both have like automatic, you know, intake paperwork that gets sent out if people do this. These are things that, all right, I have to be uncomfortable for an extra five minutes out of the day to review some paperwork because something that got added onto the schedule that I put my own availability on. <laughs> I, I, I see what you're saying. And I think that for me, yes, I think you put your own availability and you determine how much time you would need to be able to get through the paperwork, to get through the things. I think for me, there's there's the the immediate availability versus the quality of the care. And so I like to take a few minutes to to read through the paperwork to to kind of make a little bit of a plan. And that may not be available on the same day, just depending on my schedule. So I would, of course, address my schedule in the same way. I think it just depends on how you show up and, and how, uh, how much you like to wing it. But to that point, I do think getting rid of phone tag is really important you know, so that people can schedule, they can get on your calendar. They're not waiting for you to call back. They're not waiting for you to have availability that's that they have no idea about. It can be very, very helpful to have that ability for folks to schedule, whether it's a an actual session or even just a free initial consult call. Having that freedom to be able to do that, I think is really important. I think the other thing is, even if you don't take insurance, I think being able to find a mechanism to bill, like I do courtesy billing, like I mentioned, Thryzer does that courtesy billing for you and chases down benefits. Like there are really easy ways for you to help people get out of network benefits, even if you're not on the panels. And then, you know, if you're on panels, that's a whole other thing. But I think it's it's important to 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 help folks utilize benefits that they have because it makes it so much easier for them. And it's truly a customer service activity, but it can help folks stay longer in sessions. It's also really utilizing things like appointment reminders that yeah. when I started implementing them, my no-show rate went down to almost nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And occasionally when I forget to put a client on there and they're like, I didn't get the reminder. Like, are you out? Like, so <laughs> clients are, you know, really responding and, and utilizing those as well. You know, as we're coming out of full pandemic practice, I know a lot of clinicians are choosing only to continue working in telehealth. And, you know, this might be shutting off part of your market and not embracing that 
clients want to be seen both in the office and online. A bricks and clicks type approach. And while it might over it might reduce your overhead as far as not having to pay for an office space, it's something where for those clients who would benefit better by being seen in person, it is something that you might want to consider if you're actually talking about creating access for clients. I was trying to think of an X that would, would align with uh, going to the park, but I didn't think of one. But I think like having a truly flexible practice for me has been a real game changer. And so again, I'll, I'll tell people to go back to the, the non-traditional therapy approaches, things to get more about that. But, but having the flexibility to meet clients where they are in the modality that they are and potentially shifting from one week to the next, I think can be very, very empowering for clients. Some will be like, sure. And then they are a telehealth session once a week at the same exact time. And then there are some folks that they have really, their schedules are are all over the place, or they really prefer in person and a, a telehealth session is only used when they need to reschedule to a time that you're not in the office. But it, it just allows for more continuity of care if you're providing a lot of different uh, modalities, because I think it meets clients at different stages. I think another element is actually being flexible in section, session length and type. Um, I mentioned coaching calls. I've moved to a model where I'm, I've got 90-minute sessions, 60-minute sessions, and 30-minute um, kind of just in time coaching sessions and I, you know, coaching meaning coaching call therapy sessions. And I think in that regard, clients can have the type and, and amount of therapy they need at the moment. And, you know, I, I do quick co- calls too, that are, that are just part of like being my client. Um, but I think it's, it's something where being able to meet clients needs in the moment, I think it can be great. And, and, on top of being more responsive between sessions, you know, within whatever the treatment plan and model is. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. So you're suggesting that people might actively choose to bill for even like a 32 minute insurance <laughs> session because they might active actually want to. Yes. And well, that again is an inconvenience to you as a therapist. Consumers are showing that they're willing to pay less. If what they need is 32 minutes of therapy, they will find places to get 32 minutes of therapy. It's, your choice yeah. on how you schedule that and how you make your your business decisions around those kinds of things. But again, this is a podcast about competing with the changing mental health landscape. This isn't about doing more of the same and hoping that that clients learn that it's that that's actually what they need. it's It's determining how can you really think through, what clients are asking for in moving to these apps and what your clients might benefit from. Because when we get too rigid into the 50-minute hour once a week, I think there, there is a, a risk 
that clients either terminate too early because they don't need weekly therapy anymore, or they stay too long and don't get benefit because they actually need more frequent contact. And so I think really leaning into unique really creative treatment planning, I think is, is something that we can do that the McDonald's of (laughs) therapy apps cannot do. So just to remind you of the legal and ethical considerations, you're still going to need to follow confidentiality laws, HIPAA, privacy, your state licensing laws. You're still going to want to work within your scope of practice. That's definitely a thing. But as you're considering increasing the types and frequency of contact, you're also really going to want to consider the impact of dual relationships that, you know, you are probably more accessible to your clients than what you were taught when you were in grad school, that, you know, those are based on systems where that communication wasn't readily available to clients all of the time. So, really consider what your responsiveness is, what your responsive times are and the expectations that that creates for clients. And one of the best ways that you can do that is set it up as part of your treatment plans. These are the kinds of boundaries that we're describing. These are the kinds of things that you can reach out for and when and what you can expect as far as response time. I think we've also talked about this being something uh, that if folks want to include coaching sessions, that being cautious to make sure that it aligns with treatment planning so that there isn't a dual role there, right? Right. So as long as that's built in, I think it can be something that can be very, very helpful, especially for folks who are are enjoying doing coaching in, in a different business. Um, being able to pull some of that into your therapy practice as part of their therapeutic treatment plan I found that to be extremely helpful. I, for myself, I've got folks who I've got, you know, elements of their relationship and kind of executive functioning and all of those things, those goals, part of those include some executive coaching, which I think is really, really helpful to kind of pull everything together for the clients. So to start closing this out, let's talk about what you're able to do that big tech can't. Now, I've seen a number of people describe in online forums or some of the conversations that we've had that if these therapy apps are going to be the McDonald's of therapy, well, we're the prime rib, you know, we're, (laughs) but you actually have to consider, are you providing actual prime rib or are you more like a Carl's Jr.? (laughs) So So a little bit better. (laughs) I guess some people might say that's a little bit worse. I guess people do have their own brand loyalty. <laughs> Insert your other brand here, Chipotle. <laughs> <laughs> so is it McDonald's or is it Chipotle? <laughs> but you have to actually have some idea of what you're actually presenting. Just because you're not a therapy app doesn't make you by default prime rib. No, you have to actually be a good therapist. <laughs> You actually have to be a good therapist. You have to have that human connection and accountability that really makes it feel like a very strong, worthwhile healing relationship. Definitely. And I think some of these, these apps, I think there's, there is an isolation. You can be in your, in your house, on your phone, interacting with a Wobot. And I think that's something that, 
could be extremely helpful for folks not ready to, to engage with the world or with a, a, a live therapist. But if folks are ready to engage with a live therapist, I think it can be very connecting and it can be very helpful for bringing folks out into the world in a healthy way. I mean, if all you've got is the Wobot and Instagram and all you've got is this unhelpful, unhelpful social comparison, I think it can be really, really bad. But if you are a, a real person taking real care for your clients, I think that can be just so enriching. And, and to that end, you know, being able to provide really individualized treatment in a concierge or boutique way so that this is a, a truly deep connection, very individualized treatment plan, more hands-on, I think that that also is something that allows for maybe more of a prime rib approach, but also that, that connection and that really being taken care of. And what a lot of these big tech companies are going to be bound to at some point or another is quarterly earnings reports. Yeah. At the end of the day, they're going to be backed by venture capitalists. They're going to be looking at stock prices. For instance, BetterHelp hit $700 million in revenue in 2021. And they expect to grow more in 2022. And these are things that are going to push the stock price of their parent company, Teladoc, up and down. And much like any other company that is beholden to investors, when those stock prices start going down and dividends start going down, that's when usually cuts to some of the things that make those apps or those kinds of businesses great start to trickle down to Usually, first and foremost, the providers who are going to be sitting on there, but it's also going to, in turn, end up having things that affect the client quality of care. You, hopefully, are not in a position (laughs) where you are beholden to quarterly earnings reports. You don't have the financial incentives to make more money next quarter by cutting, you know, a few dollars here and there off of being able to treat people. Do you, you know, are hopefully going to make good business decisions for yourself, but doing so in mind with the client and the service focus, that the reason that people come to me is because I continue to focus on this service. It's not just the 45 minutes or 52 minutes in the office. It's 53, 53 minutes. <laughs> It's also being able to have a convenient waiting room for people. It's giving parents the Wi-Fi password so that way they have something to do while their kids are in therapy. It's really focusing on the quality of care that helps people to come back in that isn't just about the quality of care. Well, when you're talking, though, I mean, there are a lot of us that are primarily online, and so... It's also understanding the digital therapeutic alliance and and how that benefits our clients. Because I think the initial thing was like, hey, <laughs> only in person is this prime rib. But I do think that online therapists can also have a prime rib or chipotle experience for their clients. So this is a quote from Williams in a 2021 article, Williams et al. 
about the Digital Therapeutic Alliance. Digital mental health tools should be reframed as tools that can strengthen and augment therapeutic relationships, provided that there is a clear, shared understanding about how and when they will be used. Now, in this article, they describe that the Digital Therapeutic Alliance is different from a traditional therapeutic alliance. While there's still a lot of similarities as far as agreeing on what and how we're going to treat and how we're going to evaluate that we got there. What's added in this digital space is a client's belief in how well therapists are embracing the digital relationship. If we go into digital therapy sessions as, all right, this is probably not going to be as good as in person. Chances are you're going to be right. But if there's ways that you can augment some of this digital stuff into whether it's your online clients, whether it's your clients who are being seen in person, the more that you embrace the kinds and styles of lifestyles that your clients are bringing in, the more that they're going to trust in your digital work together and the better the outcomes that they're going to have. So just to to clarify, because you said a lot there. A lot of the Digital Therapeutic Alliance is similar to a traditional therapeutic alliance, but this additional piece, the difference, is that if you believe in and embrace the digital relationship as a therapist, your clients will get better outcomes. That's what this seems to support. All right. I I mean, to me, it just makes a lot of sense to, to create a practice that is supporting you as a clinician make it efficient, make it really easy for your clients to access your services. That is interesting. Work with clients that match with you and that you're able to provide really high quality care for. And that is creative where you can try new things with your clients and and actually do the stuff that's going to help them versus sticking to a cookie cutter one hour or a 50 minute hour once a week with no real thought on how you can augment services with digital products or provide an additional level of communication, connection, and continuity of care with uh, kind of more creative interactions. You can find the references for this episode over at our website, mtsgpodcast.com. If you're choosing to Go through with the continuing education. Follow the directions at the beginning and the end of the episode here. And we'd love for you to follow us on our social media and join our Facebook group, The Modern Therapist Group, where you can discuss this episode and anything else that you might want that makes it past our moderators. (laughs) And if you like this longer form content, please consider being a patron that... We are able to devote more and more of our time and energy when we have more and more support from all of you. So if you find that you're really wanting to connect with us more, for our patrons over on Patreon, we do have an opportunity to do some what we're calling our discussion lounge uh, conversations where we can do some Q&A on this episode or on any of the episodes uh, that you are, are finding interesting. Become a modern therapist level patron over on Patreon if you want to get more more stuff going in our community. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. 
Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. Just a quick reminder, if you'd like one unit of continuing education for listening to this episode, go to moderntherapistcommunity.com, purchase this course, and pass the post-test. A CE certificate will appear in your profile once you've successfully completed the steps. Once again, that's moderntherapistcommunity.com. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.